Sir Belper and the team of the Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio is the managing editor of Fangraphs, making his weekly appearance on the podcast, Dave Cameron. Uh, you know, listener, there are there are a number of baseball-related podcasts out there. Uh, you know, they all have uh, their own virtues, that's for sure. But let me ask you a question. Um, on a typical baseball podcast, what percentage uh, what percentage of all baseball are they likely to analyze? Uh, maybe 30% of all baseball, maybe 50-55% uh, if, if, if they're particularly ambitious. Uh, you know, maybe even on, on a good day, we're talking about a good day, a couple of qualified analysts, maybe they're analyzing 85% of all baseball. That's very respectable. However, what I want to tell you as the listener of, of this podcast is that uh, the guest, Dave Cameron, as he does every week, he comes on to this episode of Fangraph Studio, and he analyzes all baseball. That's all the all the baseball uh, that one could imagine. That is what is about to be analyzed uh, in what follows. Specifically, how that manifests itself is a uh, is a discussion of, uh, I guess, what we might call Belco East. The revelations on Tuesday of certain major leaguers, uh, their names being connected to an anti-aging facility uh, located in the Miami area. We consider briefly um, sort of uh, an academic question of how best uh, to present information in an easily digestible uh, but also relatively nuanced way. There are idle considerations, uh, but uh, idleness is uh, not the worst thing, it turns out. I believe also in what follows there is a uh, there's a brief meditation on the, the life and times of Nick Johnson, who was uh, who has retired but was very good at hitting, uh, and in particular not hitting, which is to say uh, walking uh, via the base on balls, getting to first base uh, for free. In any case, that's just a sampling of what is to follow because in what follows uh, on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, we have Dave Cameron analyzing all baseball, and it begins right now. Of course, we're dedicated to um, research and applying yeah. the, the scientific method, being uh, uh, being uh, I guess careful in, in how we present our information. Yeah, I've been doing that uh, for a little while now with regard to blinking, <laughs> uh, blinking re- re- records of blinking. Uh, it started, of course, with you. You you have been now for I think a couple of seasons, a couple off seasons, a guest on uh, MLB Network's Clubhouse Confidential. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Sorry, just altering the levels here. And uh, um, it, it was noted, it was observed by more than one person, I believe, at the time that uh, you don't do a lot of blinking. Or any. Really. Or sure. Yeah. And uh, so what has happened in the meantime is I've taken to measuring other other uh, guests of Brian Kenny's and, and their blinking habits. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so uh, I guess recently, uh, Godfather of Sabermetrics, uh, Bill James was on. Yeah, would you have? Would you care to guess uh, whether he blinks more or um, or less than a, than the average human on television? I have seen Bill James talk in person, mm-hmm. and I have a vague memory of him blinking a lot. So I'm going to guess that he's off the charts. You are incorrect in this case. Yeah, am I, am I really? Yeah, he's a he's actually a pretty he's a relatively staid blinker. He's not uh, he's oh. not in Dave Cameron territory because okay. Who is? And he's a human being. And he's a human being, right? Yeah. 
Uh, no, he his blink plus. Uh, I've calculated his blink plus. It's thirty six. Yeah. It's pretty low. Pretty low. Uh, whereas we have Bill Petty at one eighteen. Bill Petty's pretty close okay. to average. And uh, Rob Nyer Nyer is well above average. Correct? Yes, yes, yeah, two ten, two ten. Two ten. Wow. Yeah, it's about twice. The Albert Pujols of blinking. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's right. You know, like in his prime, right? Yeah. Yeah. But I was trying to think, um, and, and uh, to the best of my knowledge, Russell Carlton, uh, who of course used to go by the uh, the pseudonym Pizza Cutter, uh, I don't remember him doing any work on the, uh, uh, the sample size. Um, the sample sizes at which these uh, blinking stats become reliable. I, I would think this has to be something that stabilizes pretty quickly. I think this is, uh, you know, like swing rate or, uh, you know, velocity. This seems like a thing that is inherent, and uh, I would imagine this stabilizes, you know, within a segment. I would say, yeah. It actually seems that way uh, because in every every instance that I've done it, you know, there are probably like, the, the way Clubhouse Confidential works in like a four four minute segment or whatever, you know, they'll it'll show Brian Kenny or there's like a wide shot, uh, and then an in, well this is for an in guest or an in house guest, uh, in studio guest, and then there's like kind of a wide shot and I don't count those blinks because it's too you know it's too easily to distort because of the, you know scores bias. Right. Um, yes. Camera angle and uh, all that. You gotta consider that, right? And uh, right. but then when you get up close, when you do the close-ups, and and so this way it also puts it on even keel. For example, with uh, your appearances, which come from um, Will, uh, was it Will Myers' hometown? Uh, yes, I, I appear from High Point, North Carolina, High where point. Will Myers went to school. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, is, now behind you, do they just have like a? Is it like a picture of High Point? What is what is behind you when you do your your? No, stuff? it's just like a metal bar and a red wall. I'm actually I actually shoot from like a the local Fox Television studio, so yeah. it's their news set, and it's just a red wall with like a you know a couple metal bars and. Um, it's an interesting level setup. You ever consider maybe getting green screen behind you? They have a green screen, and I'm kind of looking at it. They do that for like shooting little promos and stuff, and uh, a little like, you know, what will the weather be? Find out at five. Yeah. Um, but you know, the camera is not usually aimed that way, and they do those handhelds, and uh, so they put me at the desk. Yeah. I, well, I. Yeah. I mean, I, I I would like to see a green screen though. Maybe with a, you know, like a uh, like an apocalyptic. A hellscape behind you. <laughs> I will uh, put it, put in a request for like the smoldering ruins of uh, you know New York City or something. Yeah. Whatever the the escape from New York guy like crawling out of a hole. Yeah. Right. Hey, uh, do you want to talk about? All right. Well, <laughs> we have to talk about it. I don't know if I want to talk about. It. So this thing is happening with um, what Balco East essentially. Yes. Um, it is, it is happening. You, for I guess for anyone who somehow made it to the, this podcast without hearing about it, could you could you summarize? Uh, yeah. So basically, there's a uh, anti-aging wellness doctor who has been uh, setting up various shops in in the Miami South Florida area for a while, and basically giving them the front to sell steroids to various people, um, HGH and and other such banned substances. Uh, apparently, the Miami, the new Miami, Miami New Times, which I had never heard of until today, and doesn't actually sound like a real paper, but apparently they do real journalism. They released a report today, uh, naming names and saying they have the uh, spreadsheet of, of information from the clinic that uh, attaches players to what they bought and uh, the names and nicknames they used, and um, the amount of money that changed hands, and they implicated uh, Alex Rodriguez again. 
uh, as well as Bartolo Colon, Yasmani Grandal, and Melky Cabrera, all who were suspended last year, uh, and then a few names who had never been connected to Sarah Youth before, uh, and Nelson Cruz and Gio Gonzalez. Um, and then there were, you know, various other people in there as well. Apparently the, the paper has more names that they haven't been able to corroborate, so they didn't release those yet. But generally how this works is the Latin guys get caught first for whatever reason. And, uh, you know, whether it's they have worse representation or they leave a more obvious paper trail. But for whatever reason, it seems like the Hispanic players generally get nabbed earlier on. Uh, but obviously, you know, Americans are uh, using well, and so it wouldn't be shocking if more names got released. And um, it sounds like the concentration of South Florida, Miami area is not a coincidence. A lot of players train down there. Um, it's a pretty popular off-season living spot. Um, and so it wouldn't be overly surprising if some more names come out about um, PED usage. Now, okay, so with, with the new or newish testing policies, Mm, uh, obviously, players. I mean, players are aware of these, obviously. And so, uh, somehow, Melky Cabrera gets caught. Uh, I guess somehow Yasmani Grandel gets caught. H- how is it that they're getting caught and then other players aren't? Yeah. So last year, Major League Baseball did not test for HCH in season. The only HCH test was um, in spring training. So if you pass that one clean, you could then resume using HCH all year long without any fear of being caught. Milky Cabrera, Bartolo Colon, and his money Grandal were apparently using other substances as well that were tested for in season. They all failed drug tests during the season, um, but they weren't suspended for HGH use, uh, which is only tested for in spring training. Uh, this apparent compound apparently specialized in HGH sales, um, and so a decent amount of their clients wouldn't have been uh, caught in season because there wasn't any in-season testing. That'll change for this coming year. Uh, and I wouldn't be overly surprised if, if you saw a decent amount of people failing drug tests in season for HGH. Because, you know, players, you would think, like, now that they know they're being tested for it in season, they'd stop using it. But uh, the incentive is still very high for them to, for them to you know, break the rules. And uh, I wouldn't, I don't think it's going to be much of a deterrent at all. Now, okay, uh, because I don't think it can be overemphasized or, I, or because I think it ought to be considered um, – basically as soon as any question of PDs um, is brought up, is um, what do we know about the, the ways in which PDs, whether it's steroids or HGH, what do we know about the ways in which those help players? We don't really. I mean, there's been a ton of studies on um, kind of the ways that they can impact a, a performance. Uh, most of them come back pretty inconclusive. I mean, basically what we know is that they help with training. So most of the steroids that have been developed and the, the banned substances uh, give you more energy during workouts. So they are essentially, you know, like caffeine on steroids or some kind of energy enhancer to allow you to go put in six or eight hours of the gym uh, and not get worn down as much and be able to build muscle faster. But if you're just, you know, sitting at home watching TV, you shoving a needle in your butt, it's uh, not going to help you very much. So um, it's generally tied to how hard and how much you can work out and, and kind of fitness-oriented things. A lot of players who have been caught using it have been rehabbing injuries, it um, seems to be pretty common for guys on the disabled list to try and get away with it uh, when they're trying to come back and get on the field. Um, and, you know, I think that's one of the more convenient times to admit to steroid usage is if you can just kind of blame it on the fact that you were hurt and, you know, the woe is me, I had an injury, it wasn't my fault, and I was just trying to help my team by getting off the disabled list. You know, that sounds a little bit more heroic than I just wanted to hit more dingers. Right. And, and uh, well, as you documented recently, 
Um, and this was just before, uh, I guess, the Hall of Fame votes were released, were made public. Um, in fact, we don't know for sure, or there does not seem to necessarily be more home runs uh, per ball that is, is put into play. I mean, it's up. Like, I think if you look at the 30-year trend, it's up a little bit, but it's not up a ton. I don't know, when you look at homers per contact ball and you take the rising strikeouts out of the, out of the game, um, there's no question they're higher than they were in, like, the early 90s, um, but it's not much higher. It's, like, 3.7% versus 3.4%, and it's significantly lower than it was, you know, kind of at the turn of the century when it was 4, 4.1% was probably the highest it's ever been. Um, there was definitely a, a steroid there, a home run spike. I don't think we can say that, you know, player development from performance enhancing drugs and, and home runs have no connection, but the connection's fairly uh, overrated. And, you know, considering we see a decent amount of pitchers being tied to them, uh, we see utility infielders who can't hit, uh, you know, we see you know, bad players using steroids and getting caught for using steroids. There doesn't seem to be an obvious connection where take this drug and you turn from bad into good. There's a lot of guys taking steroids who are still terrible. Okay, yeah, yeah, and you mentioned that uh, maybe the effects of uh, of steroids are overstated in the media, and I think that that's a question I have right now. Is uh, if you were to if you were to um, to break it down like this, the degree to which this is um, stories along these lines are reported versus how relevant they are to baseball on a day to day basis, um, you know, or, or to what sort of percentage they make up of everything we ought to know or or want to know about baseball how would you how would you calculate that yeah that's a good question i think the frequency and the pitch especially the pitch of the discussion uh far outstrips the, the actual weight i mean I, you know, I think a couple people today noted that uh, ray lewis was again just accused of uh, using performance enhancing drugs by a known steroid user who sells products that are banned uh, by the nfl he has, you know, text messages and voicemails with Ray Lewis ordering these substances. Ray Lewis is about to play in the Super Bowl on Sunday. This is apparently not a story, <laughs> despite the fact that it's the Super Bowl. It's the most watched television event in the world, um, and no one cares because he's in the NFL and it's, so using steroids in the NFL is not a big deal. I don't know why that is, but for whatever reason, people have decided that steroids in baseball are the end of the world and steroids in other sports just don't really matter that much. Um, I think it's a little unfortunate how much attention gets paid to all this, but, you know, yeah, appetite is obviously there. People like to, you know, kind of demonize these players for being cheaters and take a, you know, high moral ground and say, like, I can't believe that they would, you know, violate the integrity of a sport that, you know, out all minorities for a really long time and has done a lot of horrible things throughout throughout history. They like to think of baseball as a game with a, a pure history and pure record books and all these guys are tainting the game and, uh, you know, why that narrative has come to be widely accepted, I, I don't know. But it, it, it. Uh, yeah, well, so so how, how about this question? If you were to – if you had your druthers, uh, Dave Cameron, if the world bent to your will, uh, what would you maybe – what would you require or ask of um, media generally? I mean, you know, at a certain level you have an outlet for this, so that's fine. But what would you ask maybe uh, – for more coverage of that is perhaps uh, not being covered because uh, maybe these stories and let you know I mean it's clear they get a lot of notoriety and you know it to keep a publication alive you need to have viewers or to have page views or to have readers however you know however you want to quantify it 
But if you were to sort of restructure the media landscape such that it, uh, I guess, represented your interests or the interests of a sort of uh, maybe an intelligent fan, uh, how would you do so? You're you're going for the heavy hitting questions today. Uh, <laughs> well, no, just you know. what's like what's one story you think that that uh, you'd like to see um, treated treated more? Maybe it's maybe it's something that people don't know about. I think you know what I would like to see is if the if the Major League Baseball media wants to treat themselves as watchdogs and the integrity of the game of baseball and uh, really wants to do serious investigative reporting, I would like to see them turn their attention to the atrocities might be a strong word, but uh, problems in the Latin American international scouting markets. Uh, Buscones basically uh, taking in you know young kids, uh, you know, poor kids, taking advantage of them, uh, taking their signing bonuses, kickbacks. Uh, you know, we've seen a major league GM have to resign because uh, his scouts were stealing money from players they were signing who, you know, are poor. They don't have any money. They don't have any way of fighting back. Um, I don't know how many people listening to the podcast have seen the documentary Pelotero, which uh, documents the signing of Miguel Sano uh, when he was a 15-year-old going on 16 years old. Um but it's kind of an interesting look at that whole uh, environment. Um, and, uh, you know, it just kind of touches on the, the tip of the iceberg. There's a ton of corruption in Major League Baseball as it, as it pertains to international scouting um, and, you know, signing of, of players from other countries. Uh, if we want to do, like, serious work, this is stuff that actually affects people's lives. This is, you know, um, taking money from people who don't have any money, uh, taking advantage of, of really poor economies, uh, you know, teams using significant power and influence uh, for corrupt purposes. If we want to do investigative journalism and, like, serious, hard-hitting, uh, you know, a baseball story that has some real context behind it, let's go talk about that. Right. What do you think about using one's uh, access as a BBWAA member to ask uh, John Axford questions about uh, mustaches and secret Canadian plots? Uh, I don't think that was necessarily like the most highfalutin article we've ever published, but I do think that it was kind of fun, and I, I enjoyed it personally. So from you did actually you... perspective, I, I thought it was funny. I thought like the way that he interplayed with you was interesting, and I think if you keep this up, you're going to get punched in the face by some player with a not sense of humor. Yeah, I think that's going to be enjoyable as well. As, you know, basically, <laughs> player attacks Fangraphs blogger. This is going to be quite a story someday. That'd be a good story. Yeah. Well, actually, I will say. I mean, in uh, I. Uh, I said thanks to him at the time, but I would thank him again, in you know, as public a fashion as as this podcast is. But it's uh, yes, he is like um, there. I guess they're all you know they're all sorts of players. Some of them are not particularly wanting to, uh, um, you know, fraternize with the media. He is like, but he is just he's very available and he and he's like legitimately right. funny. I think so. Uh, he's a, he's a real right. pleasure so far as that's concerned. Yeah, seems like it was a good good way to get to know John Axford. Other than the guy with the mustache, who was terrible last year. Uh yeah, but I don't. Well, he had he yes he had some bad innings. Certainly, I think ultimately, uh, John Axford's going to be fine. Uh, going forward, I like John Axford. Last yeah. year, a little bit of a disaster. Yeah, right. I mean, well, it, again, well, it's so right in terms of runs allowed. Yes, which is is an. I mean, not that we want to evaluate a pitcher solely by runs allowed. Certainly, I mean, this is saying grass after all. But if you're a closer and your your sole job is to get three outs before you give up the lead, and you routinely do not do that, yeah. you had a bad year. Right. Whether it was, you know, 
sustainable or not is a whole other story. But, you know, if your sole job is to get three outs and you can't do that without surrendering the lead with frequency, you, you had a, a disappointing season. Can I ask, actually, about a, about a player like John Axford, and I think you could say, um, it's just, you know, because he's a different player, it's a different case, but maybe you could say the same thing for a player, a pitcher like Trevor Rosenthal. Um, how do how is it that these pitchers can be relatively obscure uh, while throwing 95 to 100 miles per hour, and then you know upon graduating the major leagues, you know there's a general recognition that they you know they they can be dominant for stretches. Yeah, I think it's, uh, there's a lot of hard throwing kids in the minor leagues who are awful, and so if you are not uh, regularly watching these guys or you know kind of a seasoned uh, scout who can kind of identify the good from the bad. I mean, there's a you know left-hander still kicking around the minors, a big named Fleet Valicut, uh, who I you know saw him in Double A a couple of years ago come in out of the bullpen and regularly light up 100 miles an hour. Uh, and you see like this little lefty who would drop down a little bit and still throw 100. You would think, man, this guy's good, uh, but he was actually terrible. He couldn't strike anyone out, and you know Double A hitters were hitting him pretty hard. Uh, you know, not going to have any kind of major league future, most likely. When you see enough of those kind of guys just kicking around the minors, I think it can be tough to look at, you know, a John Axford or a Tom Wilhelmson or one of these guys who kind of come out of nowhere and have obviously premium major league stuff, uh, but they didn't have success in the minor leagues, and it looked like they were just guys who couldn't pitch despite throwing hard. Um, you know, it's hard to differentiate what it is that makes it, uh, you know, 99 and good versus 99 and heavy. Okay. Yeah. That's well. That's a good. That's a good answer to have them. Thank you. Yeah. Well. I of course I do remember, uh, probably because he, uh, you know, during my lifetime, the pitcher Matt Anderson for the Detroit Tigers. Yeah. Do you remember Matt Anderson? Yeah. Yes. Number one overall pick. Yeah. And uh, he did not do a very good job of getting uh, major league hitters out. I think. Yeah. Right. Hundred and straight. <laughs> I believe he uh, he injured himself with some frequency. Okay. So uh, yeah. so Balco, we discussed. A little bit of uh, John Axford. Oh yeah, that was a, that was a good answer. Um, oh, listen, uh, just within the last hour, um, Dan Zimborski, who has been providing us the Zips projections uh, this off season, uh, he sent me the projections for the Seattle Mariners. Ah, good news. Your Seattle Mariners. Uh, would you care to guess? Do you think you'd be capable of guessing the top three field players by WAR by projected? War by mean, uh, we, we should emphasize this, and I'll, I'll mention this in, in a moment. By mean projected war. So I would be surprised if Kyle Seeger was not in the top three. You are exactly right. Uh, Kyle Seeger is third uh, yeah. with uh, 600 at bats approximately and about a two 2.7 war, two between two and a half three, something like that. Yeah. All right, sounds sounds about right. Yeah. Um, let's see. I'm going to project. Kendris Morales? No, not not so much like yeah. that. Is, yeah. And that might actually be a okay. plate appearance. That might be a plate appearance thing. Right. So uh, the hard thing is the Mariners have like 15 guys who are all about equally good. So yeah. trying to decide which one which is going to promote. Well, I'll, uh, I'll, 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 give you a hint, I'll give you a hint on one of them. Okay. Uh, he has uh, may, maybe the nicest eyes in the major leagues. Uh, well, I don't play in the major leagues. <laughs> right, so so consider uh, so consider the major yeah. leagues. Uh, uh, Dustin Ackley. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, Dustin Ackley. Uh, if, if not the best eyes uh, among them, I mean, this always happens too. If you have because he has light eyes but dark features, this right. is a right. this is a nice a nice thing to have. And then 
swooning combination. Yeah. Maybe Brendan Ryan? No. Brendan Ryan's close. I'll give you a hint. It's the second most Italian player uh, in the organization. Well, Alex Liddy's the most Italian, and he's awful. Oh so no, sorry. Uh, so, whoa, whoa, whoa! I'm sorry. Uh, yes, Alex Liddy definitely is the third uh, or the, the first most. Sorry. So the third most Italian, because the second most Italian player is, of course, Vinny Catracalla. Right. Uh, and he is not at the top. No, it is a, yeah. uh, it is a, it is a, it is a player who has been with the organization for less than a year. A position player. Yeah. Uh. I'll give you a hint. He probably won't start the season in the major leagues. Right. That's what I was trying to, like, Stefan Romero, maybe? Mike Zanino. Oh, Zanino, yes. Right, mm-hmm. of course. That makes sense, yeah. Mike, Mike I would, I'm not surprised that Zanino has a pretty good boost production because he really killed it last year. He did. He did. To his credit, he did. Yeah. Uh, he has a, a three-win projection. 3.3 wow. win projection. Yeah. I, which actually... Number one? Uh, number two. Uh, Ackley's first. Um, what, what's Ackley at? Ackley, 3-4. 3-4. Three point four. Wow, that's a, that's a pretty uh, nice bounce back for Dustin Ackley coming off a pretty well year. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. So, uh, uh, but yeah, I think uh, right. So that's exciting. That's exciting for you. Well, I mean, sure. I, you know, I <laughs> I don't know that I get excited about the projections when they come out for the Mariners because they're almost annually negative, and they just remind us how, how bad the team is. Right. Well, we've only discussed the top part of it. Right, and then the, the top part isn't so hot. Do the Mariners employ? Uh, do the Mariners employ Mike Jacobs? Uh, they do. They signed him to a minor league contract. He will probably be the first baseman in Tacoma. Okay, noted. All right. Uh, I do have a question. Uh, th- this is something to get into. I think what was it last week? We talked about uh, we, we we talked about the Zips projections a little bit last week with regard to uh, you know people's reaction to them and kind of like how it's, I think it's probably difficult for humans. To understand exactly this, the the effects of regression, or and, and we were sort right. of talking about the, the biases that exist therein, where where humans might have a tendency to, except maybe for Mariners fans, uh, might have a tendency to um, <clears throat> to make exceptions for the players who have been poor recently, and so they say no, he should be better this next season, and then but for players who've been good recently, they fans ad, ad expect those sorts of players to maintain their new levels. Does that sound right? Yeah, I think in general fans just only expect positive regression. So here's a question I have: is um, I, th- I think in part some of the reaction to these posts has been j- just be- because of sort of a difficulty in understanding those facts, and I think it's fine. I think that it takes a while to get used to those ideas. I think another part of it might have something to do with um, how information, like with the zips in particular, but how information like this generally is presented because I mean, there is like there are like at the end of each post there's a series of disclaimers um but i guess about something like this you can only include so many disclaimers and i guess that this must be a part of um and i don't know necessarily what discipline it is right but essentially trying to condense uh, quite a bit of information and, and maybe some kind of nuanced ideas, which a projection itself is a nuanced idea insofar as it involves regression, it involves a sort of algorithmic calculation, uh, it, you know, it involves age curves, et cetera. It's a pretty nuanced idea. How do you, what, how do you go about, do you think, in the best way, articulating those, articulating a large and nuanced idea like that, I guess, in as, uh, as short a space as possible? Uh, a link. I think you link to a longer piece and bang, people read it. 
I think the answer to your question is it's not palpable. It's not palpable. I don't think you can have, like, nuance and depth and brevity. I think that, yeah, I don't know if you've ever seen, like, the signs, sometimes you'll walk into, like, a repair shop or something, uh, and I think my parents have one of these that they're, uh, they have an automotive repair business, and uh, there's a sign, a little cartoon that says, you know, cheap, uh, quick, or quality. Pick any two of the three, but you can't have all three. So you right. can have cheap and good. You can have, uh, but it'll take a long time. You can have good and high quality, uh, but it won't be cheap. You can mix and match. I think it's kind of the same idea. Is, uh, if you want an in-depth, well-reasoned, thought-out, proven uh, understanding of the powers of regression and how to use a projection system, it can't also be in a paragraph disclaimer. Right. Okay. So this must be, again, I don't know the name of this discipline, but figuring out ways to present information, I guess, as responsibly as possible, but also quickly as possible. I mean, there must this must be a, a field, whether it's an information science or maybe it's a you know graphical consideration. That this must be a thing that exists, though. Yeah, I think this is part of the uh, the move towards infographics. Uh, a lot of people don't consume text and they scroll. I think one of the things we see is that a lot of people just scroll past kind of blocks of text that they don't think are going to, to interest them, and they, they don't even attempt to digest them. Um, so I think, uh, you know, maybe coming up with graphical ways or more uh, appealing ways to get people to even attempt to digest the information is, is helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, at the same time, people don't learn the same way either, so it's not necessarily one size fits all. And, you know, maybe some people you need to give tables of data and other people you need to give pictures and other people you need to give words and other people are just helpless. Yeah, right. Yeah, helpless. Uh, okay, well, that's yeah, that's uh, that was a consideration I had. Uh, um, I don't, this may or may not be the, the final consideration, but uh, you have probably heard that Nick Johnson retired. I I have, um, and uh, you know I think there's lots of jokes to be made about his brutalness, uh, but I, I do think uh, you know Nick Johnson is one of the fatter stories in baseball in terms of you know if he could have been healthy, it would have been really interesting to see what he could have done. His uh, offensive numbers when he was healthy, as you mentioned, were um, fantastic. They were fantastic. I mean, he really had uh, when when he, you know when he was able to put together. 500, 600 plate appearances, you know, which those numbers he only he only got to, to 600 once, uh, 500 uh, twice it looks like, um, not including the time he got to 600. Uh, he was able to put together pretty excellent seasons, uh, if not necessarily with lots of power, then with a pretty um, pretty um, superlative understanding of the strike zone. Yeah, I, I think, uh, and I, I know Mike Fever tweeted this the other day, but, you know, it's only minor league numbers, but to look at Nick Johnson's double season at age 20, he posted a 525 on base percentage as a 20-year-old in double A. I mean, <laughs> mind-blowing when you look at, you know, the normal amount of play discipline and skills that you see developed for a, you know, if you get a 20-year-old in double A who isn't terrible, you're pretty excited. You think, man, this guy can hold his own. To, to get on base more often than you make outs as a 20-year-old in double-A is, is really amazing. And, you know, I mean, I think his career on base percentage of the majors was 395 or something. It's not like he didn't translate that skill into, into uh, higher competition. Uh, it was really just injuries that kept Dave Johnson from having a, what, what probably would have been a really fantastic career. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, so, for example, he missed all of the year 2000, uh, which I guess would have been his rookie season probably uh, because yeah. – 
uh, as you note, he had bas- he had totally owned Double A as a 20 year old. You know, uh, he, he probably could have expected some time there. Uh, he eventually did get uh, to the major leagues in 2001 um, after after hitting quite well at Triple uh, A um, at uh, the Yankees Triple A um, affiliate. Then uh, their international league affiliate. What do we know in, about the way players develop and what happens if? They lose time. It seems like losing your year 21 season, your age 21 season, is not a great age to lose. Yeah, I think it depends on the type of player, honestly. I mean, obviously we saw Josh Hamilton lost four years, and it didn't really cost him much of a beat at all because he succeeded through raw physical ability that didn't atrophy while he was gone. I think that there are probably types of players, probably pitchers most likely, where their stuff really needs uh, significant experience in order to grow and, you know, they're not going to be able to succeed with their physical skills. They need that maturation of learning how to pitch, um, kind of fine-tuning the, the margins in which they can perform. And I think if you take those development seasons away from a guy who's, you know, succeeding through intelligence and, and kind of uh, tricking players with deception or with, you know, maybe a, a non-traditional uh, set of skills, that's going to be a big deal for them because they need that time to kind of learn what's going to work for them specifically and kind of come up with their own path. When you see a guy who's just, you know, straight up crazy tool, who's six, you know, foot four and, uh, you know, fifth the ball 500 feet, you know, that doesn't go away. So I think for a guy like Hamilton, we do see it's affected him on his, you know, he's in his 30s and he still doesn't understand the strike zone. Um, but I think, you know, he's been able to succeed in spite of that where other players really need that development time just to get to the big leagues. With regard to, to Josh Hamilton, that's a, that's an interesting point. I mean, he's what thirty now, thirty one. Thirty one, I believe. Thirty one. So so right. So he just had his age thirty one season, um, and yet, as you note, he missed about four years. Is he essentially? I mean, is he like a twenty seven year old in some ways? Would you suggest? I don't know because I don't think that major league time is the same as development time. I think if if he would have had those minor league seasons, perhaps somewhere along the way, someone could have tamed down his decisions to swing at every pitch that's ever been thrown his way, and I'm not suggesting that Josh Hamilton would have turned into a walk monster, but at least he could have learned to not swing at pitches into eyeballs, and maybe, you know, get into hitters counts, and, and the value of, you know, sitting on a fastball 3-1 and making them throw you a strike, uh, you know, I think when he got thrown into the major leagues, you know, I don't know that that necessarily makes up for it, especially because he succeeded with his skill set the point where they never needed to coach him to do any differently. Even if you're succeeding in the minor leagues, the focus is still on development and improving and kind of helping you get better, where if you're already hitting well in the major leagues, like Josh Hamilton did when he got to the major leagues, the focus wasn't going to be so much on helping him improve, it was going to be keeping him healthy. Right, and it, it should be noted that he still managed this year um, while having little understanding of strike zone to, to hit better uh, by 40% than league average. Yeah, right. I mean, but Josh Hamilton is not a failure of player development. I mean, <laughs> Josh Hamilton is kind of a, a remarkable story in that, you know, like when we talk about whether players are, are born or developed, he's a pretty clear case for born because he didn't get any development time and he's still awesome. Yeah. I hope, I hope, I hope that uh, if and when I have a child, that will that will happen. To uh... Yeah, if you are have a child, try to treat them better than Josh Hamilton's parents treated him. Yeah, that might be a thing too. I hope I do. I think maybe just by accident I would. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> as long as you aren't uh, aren't the worst parent ever. Right. You yeah. yeah. Okay. Um. Well, yeah, I think you've done it, Dave Cameron. It appears as though. Uh, well, yeah, we didn't talk about the Justin Upton trade, um, but uh, that was, I don't know. 
that happened almost a week ago, and I don't know. Do you have any lingering comments about it? Uh, four, five days, six I, days? It, it's probably something we can talk about in a future podcast. I think the things that I find interesting about Just, the Justin Upton trade aren't about Justin Upton. They're about roster construction. They're kind of about the way we evaluate a team's process. Um, they're about you know the kinds of, of ways we see trade analysis and people viewing you know that old concept of if you get the best player you won the trade. But like to me, the, the interesting thing about the Jeff Stockton deal uh, are about the, us and what our reactions to the deal say more than the trade itself. Right, and I think we should all uh, be thankful because uh, it looks like this guarantees Juan Francisco. Uh, some manner of, of uh, starting role on the Atlanta Braves this year? I think that when it comes to Juan Francisco and people having to watch him play, nothing is guaranteed. <laughs> I think uh, I think he's an exciting player. I don't think he's a great player, but it, as someone who doesn't care if the Braves win or lose, I, I'm, <laughs> it don't, doesn't bother me. Right, but unfortunately for you, your excitement is tied to whether he can help the Braves win or lose, and, and evidence doesn't seem to suggest that he's going to help them much. I guess, yeah. He actually does have a, uh, maybe, a, well, in some ways he has a skill set that might appeal to to some Softball version. Team? Yeah, well, he hits a lot of home runs, people like that. Right. And I think like yeah. he can actually sustain like a decentish average because uh, he swings early and often, so when he he's going to be making contact at some point. Right. He's basically the William of infielders. Yeah. Uh, he might have a little bit more staying power. Plus, he also did yeah, have actual nah, like de- development time in the major leagues, or, you know, in the minor leagues. Whereas, like, right. I mean, that's I guess, an, so he will, well, William Opinion could have been, maybe. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting case with regard to William Opinion, too, right? It's like, like, we're right. talking about the, the idea of development time. I mean, given right. William Opinion's raw skills, he's someone that you might have liked to see have. Uh, have a little bit more time to to understand the strike zone, and, and you think you have to think that he would have benefited from it. Yeah, right. And you know, I think there's probably conditioning aspects in there too. Or you know, William Opeña, if he would have been forced to work out in the minor leagues versus getting in the major leagues and getting to you know fly around in nice hotels and get really large, maybe William Opeña would have remained not a DH. Yeah. What is? Oh, yeah. You think he? Well, you know, at points when he played for the Red Sox in 2006, 2007, he played center field for them. Yeah, that was, I think, an experiment in absurdity. They just wanted to see how bad of an outfield defense they could put on the field. Well, because center field in Fenway is not particularly friendly either. Yeah, I, I think the, the fact that Willie Mobinia played center field uh, is one of those things that our grandkids will not believe. They're going to think it's like a record-keeping error. <laughs> All right. All right, Cameron. Yeah, you really have uh, uh, satisfied your obligation. Uh, so uh, so uh, thank you for uh, thank you for showing up, really. Well, right. I, I didn't really go anywhere. All right. That's Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.